Man, our hope is that in our unrighteousness, we get to clothe ourselves with His righteousness, our sin covered by His sinlessness. Jesus is our hope. Amen. Well, it's great to be here with you. It's great to be worshiping Jesus Christ with you, man. Fired up to be celebrating our Savior as we kind of enter into this season here and making much of him. Man, please hear me. We rally together every week to make much of Jesus Christ. It is all about him. And all of God's people said... Amen, man. It's a huge deal. And uh, so we're in a series here. We're actually closing it down today. I can't believe I'm saying those words. Time has flown by, but we're, we're walking through the book of Revelation. And in fact, we're finishing the first series in that, the first three chapters. And uh, it's called Wake Up Call. And so chapter one was Jesus kind of introducing himself, and there was a vision in that, and seeing all that he is, and how he's in charge of the churches, and how he actually is in charge of the messengers, and making sure that this church is being built, and he's the one over it. And then chapters two and three was a battle cry to each of seven churches. These were churches that were real, churches that existed in the time of John. They were right there in Asia. And so these were real churches, real letters to real people. Everybody say real, right? And that's a big deal. These churches actually existed. They had a lot going on. And so we can learn from that in the same way that we go and read the, maybe the letter to the Ephesians or the letter to the Colossians. And we can see what was going on in their life. We can see what was challenging them principles that are true even today that we can then apply across. So that's exactly how we're walking through this and just saying, Lord, shape us, show us as we see the wake-up call that was given to the seven churches, right? And a huge deal that we go through it um, with an honest, worshipful approach. Lord God, rock my world as I study your word here. So that said, we're going to be diving into the last of the seven churches. And just so you know, we're going to jump in then to Revelation 4 through 19. That's going to launch at the beginning of January. January 8th, we're going to be launching that series. So fired up to be going after that. And in between here, we're going to do a Christmas series and kind of walk through a celebration of Emmanuel, God with us, celebrating the one who has already come the one who has made himself known and available for us, and the one ultimately who is coming again. And all of God's people said, all right. So that said, why don't you turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, as we learn about the church of Laodicea, and we learn along with them, right? Uh, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. If you've got your Revelation booklets, the things that we're using with our sermon outlines, it'll be that last week, week nine. Point number one, do not rely on your wealth, education, or successes. It makes you lukewarm for Jesus. Do not rely on your wealth, education, or successes. It makes you lukewarm for Jesus. As we dive into the last of the letters here, actually this church struggled with a lot of things that honestly our modern day American church is struggling with. And this is a huge call out for us to be able to understand and grasp our worship in light of all that God is. So here we go, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And you hear that last phrase, you can hear a little bit of why I'm saying maybe this applies well to the church in America today. I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Maybe a little too much focus on the physical world, missing all that we need in Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what this church was struggling with. So let's just jump back to the beginning here. It says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea. So again, just like we've said in the six other letters, as it started out exactly the same way, just a change of church name, right? And to the angel, which means messenger, that could be used for a human-to-human messenger or a a divine messenger, a God-to-man messenger. And usually we would use the word angel, meaning that, the representative from God coming to man and bringing some message. But the reality is, in the Greek, that word messenger, it was used for humans as well as others. And And uh, probably this is a person that's being called out, a human being who represents as pastor and who represents as the one bringing the message to the church. He's like, hey, for you who's shaping the church of Laodicea, here's what you need to know, all right? To the angel of the church in Laodicea. So Laodicea, let's make sure we know a little bit about it. First of all, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. All right. It did very well for itself. It had a lot of riches. In fact, Laodicea had been uh, destroyed by an earthquake earlier on. In fact, many cities around it hit by that same earthquake. But Laodicea had a lot of wealth and a lot of uh, strength. And they, they brought their money to bear. They brought their, uh, their thought to bear. And they were able to rebuild the city. And they took this city back up out of the ashes and they used their wealth and their cunning to be able to do it. So you can kind of see as this city is now thriving post tribulation post terrible moment that happened with them post earthquake as they're thriving they're like hey man our wealth and our thought thought, thoughtfulness and planning did a lot like we're doing well in this and you can see why they maybe started to lean on themselves a little more their riches being a big deal in fact there were several businesses that thrived in the area as well a big deal because you'll see them referenced in the letter today and so one of their businesses that was thriving was uh, the sale of clothing garments. In fact, colored garments was a big deal for them. Being able to make color stay in a wool and not just be washed out was a big deal. And there were some that were experts at it. In fact, uh, this city had a few of those experts and they were able to make many different colors stay within the garment. They sold kind of these high-end, colorful garments, putting them on display, all right? And they made a lot of business uh, decisions with that and they laid up, made a lot of wealth with that. Uh, That said, they were known more for their uh, medical even maybe than just their garments. And uh, they had a lot of clinical stuff that went on. There was in fact some of the most renowned eye clinics in the area. I'm not sure what all they did exactly to be able to help manage the eye, but they did have medical clinics and they worked with the eyes trying to help people to get better in that regard. People would travel from all over to go to the ophthalmology there. Yeah, I know that word, ophthalmology, right? And uh, so they they went to get some eye help a lot of times there. And so medical uh, as well as business going on in huge ways. That said, they also had a number of uh, things around them that were interesting. They had two neighboring cities that were known for their uh, different waters. Hierapolis was known for this heat 
They had these, these high-end hot springs. And so it was really refreshing to be able to sit down in those hot springs, very therapeutic to the muscles, to the bones. There was some kind of uh, minerals in it as well. And so you could go and sit in and catch the therapy of the hot springs just nearby there at Hierapolis. There was also another city nearby, uh, Colossae, that had very cold springs, And these cold springs were super refreshing waters to be able to drink. I mean, you have to understand, this is in an era where there was no ice, man. Like, so to be able to catch cold water was very refreshing. I can't even imagine living in a world with no ice. Like, for me, that's a huge deal. I love having my drinks freezing cold. I know some of you are like, I really don't. My wife loves hers kind of tepid water, no ice at all. Freaks me out a little bit, I gotta be honest. Don't like that at all. Some of you are like, no, I love tepid water. You can go out with my wife and enjoy a tepid drink together, all right? So I love the cold water. I love the ice and the refreshment of it. They had these nearby. They had the hot springs that people would come and get therapy at. They had the cold, refreshing waters that they could kind of get a very unique experience and a refreshment with. And some of that was around as well. So Laodicea, it had a lot going on uh, nearby and within the city, all right? That said, let's just make sure we look at this map real quick. We'll pull this up one last time here. This was in the second week of your booklet, and we talked through it a couple different times, but good to just get a little refresher on it one last time. So this map is actually, you can see Patmos, the island there. That's where John was banished off to, right? He was relegated to this island because he took a stand for Jesus, because he took a stand for God and his word, and they were like, that's it, we've had enough. Get this guy out of here. Don't let him affect other people with the talk of Jesus Christ. So he was banished to the island of Patmos, what's circled out there in the water. And then we have the seven cities over there in what was called Asia, that's actually modern day Turkey, right? So in fact, kind of picture it, if you go just a little bit more over and down, that's right where Israel is, all right? So you're sitting right here in that Mediterranean area. And these are the seven churches that were kind of going at that time that needed to be addressed and who Jesus was calling out to. By the way, notice it starts out with Ephesus and then goes up to Smyrna, up to Pergamum, then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Can you see the order as it goes? That's actually the order in which the letters were written. So it was written for a messenger to bring it along and go to each of these and drop it off. I've already dropped the message with the church at Ephesus. Now I'm going to the next and the next. And that's what was going on as he made his way up, around, and down, spreading the message that God called him to, okay? So this is the seven letters. We're now at Laodicea, the last and kind of the furthest over there inland, all right? All right, here we go. So let's dive in a little bit. Jesus describing himself, he says, the words of the amen the faithful and true witness. Remember, Jesus always giving a little bit of a knowledge of himself, and it'll make sense as to the challenge he then brings. But he says, the words of the amen, that word in the Hebrew, amen, it means so be it. It means yes, that, right? When we say, and all of God's people said, amen, we're saying, and all of God's people said, so be it. Like, yes, that is so true. And Jesus is like, this is who I am. Everything I do, everything I say, so true. Jesus is the embodiment of amen. That's who he is. He's like, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. 
faithful like what he says he will do and you can count on him and that's the end of it. He will so follow through on his promises. What he says, he does. What he promises, he is. He is faithful and he is true, a true witness. What he says is right, it's honest, it's real. And in fact, it says that he's a witness. He stands in the gap for, he stands on behalf of, but this word witness in the original language is the same word that we get the word martyr from, right? It means to stand on behalf of no matter the cost. Even if it takes my life, I will stand on this behalf. And Christ, standing for you and for me, and he went to the cross for us. He is our witness. He is our true and faithful witness. May he get all the glory. Man, we need a savior. And Jesus Christ is our king. He has died for us. He has risen for us. And we trust in him. And all of God's people said, so be it. May God get all the glory, right? All right. He says, uh, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus Christ is the beginning of all physical things. Did you know that? That the spoken word of God in Genesis 1, when it says, in the beginning, God said, that is Jesus who is speaking. We see that in Colossians 1. He speaks and the world exists. By his presence, he sustains it. Christ is king of the physical world. Jesus is the representative of the Godhead. Yes, the Godhead got together on. There's an us in the creation. But Jesus is the one who speaks it, sustains it, holds it. He is God over all physical creation. He is king over all physical. And he takes responsibility for that. That's a huge deal. We're going to see that roll out in this passage, but all through the book of Revelation. He is owning what is going on. He is head of all of creation, and God has a plan. Everybody say, God has a plan. He does, man. Jesus Christ, he is king of all creation, and he speaks and sustains this world. He says, I know your works. Now, in all the other letters, when we see I know your works, he's actually starting out with a positive. He's going to give some statements of things they're doing well, and then he'll turn it over with a statement, something like, uh, but this I have against you, right? But that's not going to happen here. In fact, with Laodicea, there's no favor going on. There's no, this is a great job. There's no, I love this area. It's just, these are bad. These are things to work on. The church has fallen apart, man. The church is drifting away and losing it. The church is truly lost their first love like the church of Ephesus and worse because the works were even drifting away. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now you can hear the reference here to the cold springs and the hot springs, right? You were neither hot nor cold, like hot like the therapeutic springs of Hierapolis, or cold like the refreshing cool springs over here in Colossae. Like you were neither of those. You're neither hot nor cold. Some have tried to take time where they're like, I think hot is good. That's like on fire for Jesus, and cold is like bad, and he's like, pick a side, and I wouldn't go there with this. Here's what he's really saying. Hot has its value, therapy, healing. Even it's so hot that at times could be used for boiling and cleansing and purifying. Hot's good. And cold has its value, refreshing and, and satisfying in so many ways. Something, 
pick something and be about it. Go after it with me. Be on fire for me. He's like, find a value in me and share that out with me and from me. Cold and hot, both are good. Everybody say good. The one thing that's bad is not having either of them. That's the illustrating, that's what's going on. And in fact, he says with it, would that you were either cold or hot. Like pick something and go after it and worship me in it. Can you imagine being a city that is known for your resourcefulness, your wealth, your income, your business, your medical, and you know of churches within tens of miles that are going through tribulation and hurt and pain and poverty and suffering and you're not a part of that? How is your name not there sharing with and caring for them in the midst? He's like, jump in. Be a part of along the way. Huge deal. Jesus says, come and get fired up, hot, cold, whichever water you go. Then he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Have you ever had one of those moments where you take a drink and it's like way more sour or bitter or something than what you thought? Way hotter, way cold, way, way lukewarm, just bland, whatever it is. And as you take a drink, you're like... <laughs> and it just spews out, that's the image Christ is giving. He's like, and that, that is not what I'm looking for. That's a huge deal. And man, this is basically Christ saying, longing for so much more from you, longing for you to go after me and be fired up for me along the way. And whatever spewing out of your mouth means coming from Jesus, can we agree it's not a good thing? And he's like, really, this needs to be shaped up. Let's go after it. And he's like, why did I spew you out of my mouth? Let me share. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Dude, I don't even know how a church can voice these words. They completely miss the gospel message. It is shocking. It, honestly, it hurts me to read it. I need nothing Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again so that we could have forgiveness. Men, please hear me. Every single human being, we need. We need a savior. We need our sin covered. We need our God to forgive us. We need Jesus Christ and his healing blood. We need him. This, this, my works are good enough, I don't need. Down with that plan. Christ spews that out. And that is missing the gospel message and all that he's about. May God get all the glory. They literally are saying, hey, look, man, we've accomplished. I got a lot of money, got a lot of things, a lot of successes. Actually, I can find myself through any problem and kind of fix it. Whatever comes up, I got it. Don't worry about it. And all of a sudden, they start leaning in with their own control, with their own money, with their own power, and they're fixing most problems their own way. And they're like, we're good. We're good. I don't have a need. It's a statement of dependence. Their dependence was on themselves or their money or their influence or their control somehow on themselves, not on Jesus Christ. And that's what was so horrifying to the taste buds of Jesus right? So absolutely sickening along the way. You know, I contemplated the word dependence a lot this week and spent a long time on it. Um, I just came down to this summary. Best definition I can come up with for dependence. 
little bit of my words here, but best definition for dependence, you may want to write this down, ready? Dependence, it's where you look first in times of trouble. Dependence, where you look first in times of trouble. How are you doing in depending on the Lord? Man, dependence on Him. When problems come up, is the first thing you go to your control, your influence, then your money, then you're going down the line on you, and when it finally is so bad and it's blown you up and you can't figure out another way, then you finally go to God and, okay, fine, God, I I need help here. Like, not that. Who we go to first shows where our real dependence lies. Where do you go first in the face of troubles? This is a huge deal. Dependence, where you look first in times of trouble. So I just wrote this down then. So how do we practice dependence on Jesus? How do we practice dependence on Jesus? Top three ways that we practice dependence on Jesus, all right? Again, you may want to write this down. Top three ways that we practice dependence with Jesus. Number one, these are pretty basic, by the way, but here we go. Number one, come humbly. Come humbly. Come willingly, just saying, I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all. I need you, Lord. The worst statement this church could make, I don't, I don't need anything. Like, not that. Come humbly to Jesus Christ. I need you, Lord. And I don't have all the answers. You are awesome. And that's a huge start to our dependence as we recognize our need. Come humbly. Second, pray honestly. Pray honestly. And do write down that second word. Pray honestly. And all too often we come before God and we start saying words that we think should be said. We start praying in a way that we think is biblical or somehow honoring. Maybe it's even truthful, God, you're in charge. And so I'm just giving this all to you. You have it. You're good. I've got it. You're good, God. I'm trusting you. And the problem is, but inside we're a wreck. And we're not being real with where we're at. Too many platitudes in our prayer and not enough honesty as we come before our king. Praying honestly, like a full recognition of who he is. This is that simple moment where you're like, Lord, I see the blessings. I see who you are. I see what you're doing. Yes, thankfulness. And, and God, this is wrecking me. This is scaring me. Lord God, please, I'm coming to you. I'm looking to you. Lord, may you take control of this problem. I'm trusting you. Lord, I am concerned. I am confused. I am afraid. I am fill in the blank. Honesty. Man, praying platitudes does not cause you to get closer to Jesus. You're keeping him at arm's length. Like, please pray honestly. Come humbly. He knows what's going on. You're not going to be like, Lord God, this is wrecking me. And he's like, really? That's not going on. Everybody say, not that. No, he knows what's going on, man. Get real with your king and lay it down. Here's where I'm at. Come humbly. Pray honestly. And then third, trust vulnerably. Again, get that second word. Trust vulnerably. Man, to be able to say, okay, Lord, I'm setting down my control. I give up my control. You're in charge. What you say goes. Whatever you do, whatever you choose, God, you will be worshiped. I will trust vulnerably. 
God, I feel like I'm at risk. Man, the number one way that we fix our vulnerability is control, right? High fear, high control. Like they just come side by side. And if we don't address that we actually have this going on, we'll just start controlling all over the place and we can't figure out why. Trusting vulnerably is when we literally say to God, all right, I'm gonna hand this to you. And my hands are shaking. I'm not gonna lie, God, I'm nervous about, but you're in charge. Man, this is where that battle cry, my God can, my God will. And even if my God doesn't, I will worship you. That is a thunderous statement of trust. Come humbly, pray honestly, trust vulnerably, and watch God rock your world with a deep worship like you have never experienced before. Man, may we truly recognize the fire and the passion we need to have in depending on him first and foremost. The church at Laodicea, they had a dependence problem and they were not getting what it looked like to come to Jesus Christ. It says next, not realizing that you are. Have you ever had one of those conversations where you're talking with somebody and they're like, you are so, like whatever the next words are, you're not, you're thinking it probably won't be good, right? You are so, Jesus is having one of those moments with them. You are, and here he goes beginning to describe it. You are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind and naked. Now let's be honest, the description he gives there, well that's just kind of true of all sinful human beings. This is all of us, everybody say all of us. It really is. But when you're walking around saying, I got it all together, I don't need anything. These are a bit offensive. Like I got it all in hand, you are wretched. No, really, people look to me pitiable. Dude, I have all the wealth in the world. You are poor. I, I got garments coming out all over the place. I'm selling like you wouldn't believe. Naked. Jesus is like, you're missing it. You're looking at the physical world and I'm looking at the spiritual. You're missing what I can bring to you and what you need. So let's just write a few words down. Wretched, it means wrecked. It means in dire need. Wretched, in dire need. Pitiable, like dude, you're in a sad state. Others can even see it as they look on. You may be missing it, but it is a sad moment. A sad state, pitiable. You are poor, spiritually bankrupt. You are not taking advantage of Christ pouring in, of me pouring into your life and rocking your world. You are missing it. You are poor. In the midst of your journey of life, you're missing the spiritual wealth. All you have is physical wealth and it's getting distracting to your soul. You're poor. And last, blind and naked. Like you cannot see what I'm doing. You lack a discernment and you lack the clothing of righteousness that only comes in me. Like you're lacking discernment and righteousness and love and passion and compassion. You're lacking the understanding that your sinfulness is your problem and I am your hope. Come to me. And this battle cry was a huge battle cry of relationship. And he's like, don't let the physical world get a hold of your soul. It is so easy for this physical world to take over, isn't it? It's just easy for us to get distracted with possessions, 
with successes, with titles, with whatever. And all of a sudden, it starts tearing us down and taking us away. You can imagine that as John was penning this from the mouth of Jesus, as he's hearing Jesus say it and recording it down, this is John writing to them. Remember, John is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. John is the guy who walked with Jesus for three years, who saw him do miracles, who watched him speak and lives were changed, who saw him touch and people were healed. John is the guy who saw him feed the thousands. John is the guy who was walking alongside of Jesus and saw Jesus as the great teacher walking along, just stopped by the roadside with a vineyard right above him there. And he says, I am the vine. You're the branches. As he began to make clear to his disciples what it means to draw life from me, to trust in me, to depend on me. As John was writing this down, I can only imagine that he could like feel the wind still blowing in his face as he heard those words and saw Jesus with a smile on his face pointing and saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and I in you, and you will be stunned with what you can have, the life that you can have in me. This is the invite coming. This is just tens of years after Jesus has said those words, and this church is missing the grandeur and the glory of having it. In fact, at the end of it, Jesus says, by the way, guys, apart from me, You can have nothing. You can do nothing. The statement from Jesus Christ, come, depend. I am ready to pour it on in your life. Don't let the distractions of this world take you down. And how are you doing at abiding in him? At depending on him? putting him first no matter what you face, trusting vulnerably, God gets all the glory. How are you doing? Or maybe here's a better question. What's your distraction that so easily entangles? What needs to be given to the Lord? Lord God, this matters. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's become too much. It's taking over my attentions. May you get my worship. What do you need to give to him? May God get all the glory, okay? Point number two, embrace. Embrace the discipline and and training of your loving Father and respond as he, Jesus, knocks at your heart's door. Embrace the discipline and training of your loving Father and respond as Jesus knocks at your heart's door. Go after it with him. So Jesus begins to tell them the suggestions that they need to go through. He says, I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined by fire. I counsel you to buy gold refined by fire. Here is what he's not saying. I know you're already buying some gold, but come to Jesus. He has great gold. Like my gold is really good. You should buy my gold. It's better than their gold. He's not talking about physical gold. He's talking about things that are of the spiritual level. He's beginning to use it as a metaphor and pull them across. And we're going to see it more as he moves through this. He's saying, listen, you need to be refined by fire. 
1 Peter 1 talks about our souls being refined by fire. As we go through struggle and tribulation, it does grow us one degree of glory at a time. One little bit at a time as he's walking us through and he's like, trust me, one little step. Just trust me, come on. And we're gonna take this step and it's gonna rock your world as I refine your soul. Buy into that and watch your life be shaped. His call to Laodicea, come to me, be shaped by me, one degree of glory at a time, on fire for Jesus. He says, so that you may be rich. Like they're already physically rich. They already have cash. It's not about getting wealth physically. This is about spiritual wealth that you might be rich in Jesus Christ, that you might be rich in a righteousness that God forms in you, that you might taste and see that the Lord is good, that you can love him with all you've got, that you might be rich. And then it says, and go buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Buy white garments that you might clothe yourself. And remember, these guys were making money in a garment industry. The garments that they sold often had tons of color in them. And that's what they were making their money off of. And Jesus is like, yeah, you need a white garment. White, a representative of righteousness. You need your souls clothed with my righteousness. A righteousness that you do not have. This is not go after being good enough. This is come to me. I am your savior, I am your king. I will give you my righteousness. Man, our hope is that in our unrighteousness, we get to clothe ourselves with his righteousness, our sin covered by his sinlessness. Jesus is our hope. Everybody just say, our hope. Man, may we be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. May we long for him to be our everything. It's this simple. May we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's alive. Do you believe he's alive? Believe. And then next, and we must confess him as Lord. You're in charge of my life. I'm giving you everything, take over. Romans 10 says that's it. That's what it takes to be saved. To be clothed with righteousness is to say, I'm trusting you, I'm in. Do you trust Jesus Christ with your life? Are you walking with him? He says, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. The righteousness of Jesus Christ clothing us and covering us from any sin ever in our lives, ever. Whatever sin you have in your life, Jesus longs to pay for it at the cross, cover it with his righteousness on into eternity. Are you willing to hand him your sinfulness and receive from him his perfection and righteousness? May God get all the glory. Man, come to him. He says then, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Remember, this was a medical community and they did a lot with the eyes. So this had to bring a smile to their face. It's like, I I see what you're doing. As he's like, and a salve to your eyes, a discernment that gets brought across as you know God's word, as you know him as king, as you lean on him and trust in him, as that begins to bring you across, our eyes literally beginning to see 
for the first time. A discernment in worship, a discernment in struggle. I get it, Lord. I see what you're doing. He's like, come to me. I will heal your eyes. I will clothe your soul. I will so satisfy. Come and go after these things instead of colored garments, some kind of golds and whatever else. Instead of going after healing in the medical world, come after a spiritual answer that only I have. May God get all the glory. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. There are some that say they think maybe nobody was saved in the church of Laodicea. I'll say this, they definitely were struggling a lot with who Jesus was, but in every church, you have some that are saved and some that are not. And I think when you see this couple of phrases here, you see him talking to the saved within the churches. He's like, I love you and I will bring you along. I will discipline you. Please hear me. Love cares and love does engage. Love does discipline in the process. Man, your God loves you and he will call you away from the sin that is hurting your soul. He will because he cares so much. I just wrote these words down. Love actively shapes those in their care. Love actively shapes those in their care. Hey, parents, hear that. As you start to consider what discipline looks like in your home, love actively shapes those in their care. You love your kids, so you're gonna call them along. It's not just letting it all go, whatever they want. It's calling them to what is right and good and so honorable to the Lord. It's shaping them in a way that is good for them. Love actively shapes the ones under their care. Parents, take that to heart. That's your God in your life, and that's your role in your kids' lives. May God get all the glory as we allow him to shape and discipline and walk us through even the hard times to teach us to let go of something. May God get all the glory. And then his challenge to him, and this is a great sentence for being able to prove that it is to believers. He says, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous. Please hear me on this. Zealous. That is a proof that he's talking to believers. We are not saved by zealousness. Get that? You can be zealous about anything. That doesn't save. We are not saved by zealous. We are saved by a passion for Jesus Christ and calling him savior. And all of God's people said, he's like, be zealous about me. Be zealous about the cross. Be zealous about sin being covered, righteousness being clothed. Go after that with all you've got. Zealous and repent. Drop the sin and run to me. Eyes fixed on Jesus, not on self. He says, behold, And when we see the word behold, we say, yeah, check it out. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Now, many have used this to talk about uh, Jesus with unbelievers as a salvation call. And I will say there's nothing wrong with talking about that. God does draw the heart across. And so there can be a talk of that connect. But here he's talking to the lukewarm church who has drifted from Jesus and is attracted by the world and is thinking they've got it down. And he's like, listen, I am knocking on the door of your heart. And as he comes and knocks, hear me. This is the one thing being said. I love you. Mercy poured out. Our sin can be forgiven. Jesus going to those who have walked away from him in some kind of distraction, and he's like, come back. Let's do this together. This journey of mercy and life 
and love. Our God comes alongside of us in all of our brokenness, and he's knocking on the door and calling us to set the sin down and open it up and spend time with him. Your God loves you. Whatever sin, set it down and open the door to your Savior. May he get all the glory. And all of God's people said, it's like I knock on the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Relationship. Man, I'm going to connect with you in a way that will rock your world. Please hear me. We serve a risen Savior. We serve a God who can rock our world on a moment-by-moment basis. May we never look to the stuff of this world and think it's good enough. May Jesus Christ get all of our attention. Lord God, rock me with who you are. Blow me away with all that you have. I'm ready to be stunned by you now. No more toying around. May you get all the glory. Man, may we come to our king and grasp. He is so worth knowing. And all of God's people said, he said, life with me. Eat with me and I with you. Man, we're coming into the Christmas season. and We're gonna be celebrating this season in a massive way as we make much of Jesus Christ. And we kicked it off yesterday with the women's event and a couple hundred women that rallied together to make much of Christ and to celebrate his ministry back then as he came the first time and coming again. Jesus Christ, our King, Emmanuel, God with us. And as we celebrate on these different services throughout this month, man, we will be making much of Jesus Christ, just taking a moment to breathe deep and to behold him and be in awe. There is nothing you can do, nothing that Christ can't forgive, cover, and move you through. Come to Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, man, may we lean on him, may we embrace him, may we trust him, okay? What is the thing that's keeping you from rushing in? Time to set that down. May God get all the glory. And point number three, Be a conqueror for Jesus and you will sit on a ruling throne with him. Be a conqueror for Jesus and you will sit on a ruling throne with him. It says, and the one who conquers, everybody say that's saved, right? We're told those who are saved, we are more than conquerors. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Everybody say with me. Right, Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is the king over all creation. He's spoken into existence. He's sustaining it along the way. He has the rule over it all. He sits on a throne over it and he's inviting you and me as the church to be alongside of it with him on his throne. When this comes to the end of this world as we know it and the thousand year millennium begins, Christ sitting on his throne and the church being able to rule with him alongside of him, various ways, shapes, and forms, no idea what that's going to look like, but part of it with him, relationship. And as we go on into eternity, him being able to share with you all that he is. Man, please hear me. Eternity is going to drop our jaw. If you're thinking of heaven as like, 
Same song getting sung over and over and over again. How in the world is that going to be enjoyable beyond the third go-round, right? Like if you're thinking of heaven as some kind of worship in that regard, you're missing it. Worship is our everything. It's going to be in what we say and what we do. Our God is a creating God. You think that's going to stop? He's going to be blowing us away forever in eternity, putting a smile on our face every day. Rock your world. That's our God. Are you ready to know this King? Forever may we celebrate him. He says, I will grant you to be with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. God the Father gave to God the Son and so Jesus is going to share out with us what we do not deserve, but may he get all the glory. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ends it the same way as all the other letters. He who has an ear, That's them at that time. That's us today. May we hear the call to know Jesus Christ and come to him. He is knocking on your heart's door. Are you ready to praise the king? And all of God's people said, let's pray.